Welcome to A Word from the Valley, a weekly podcast produced for you from Zion Lutheran Church in Middletown, Maryland. For more information about our faith community and our weekly worship services, visit us at zionmiddletown.org or find us on Facebook. We hope you have a great week, and God bless. When I say the word catechism, what are the thoughts that come to your mind? Is it the three-hour classes that you were forced to sit in Pastor Hoover's home or Pastor Turley's home, walking uphill both ways in the snow, even in the summertime? (laughs) You all picture the orange and red small catechism that could fit in your your breast pocket. Do you all remember them? Right? When I say catechism, do you think of dread or do you think of happy thoughts? And I think if you think of happy thoughts, you probably wouldn't be sitting in the pews right now. You'd be standing in one of these pulpits. But, I mean, although looking back, I don't know if I really enjoyed catechism all that much. Although I did. I didn't. It's a weird thing. It was a weird time to be a teenager and learning about Jesus. Right? A lot of us remember confirmation as a time when you had to stand in front of people and publicly say parts of the the catechism that you had to memorize, right? I think most of us today, though, after we finish confirmation, we we probably haven't picked up that little book since then, right? Which is a shame. And something that the church is actively trying to change. Back in 2017, at the, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, the Lutheran Church, we did a major push to put the catechism back into the vernacular, back into our daily devotional text, as it was intended by Luther to be, a daily devotional text. We not only reprinted it, which are up here, we also made it available for free online in app stores. You can download the small catechism and put it on your phone and read it wherever you like. The small catechism is it's a great it's a great thing. And it's not just a medieval torture device that we use for confirmating students, right? In this little book holds a lot, holds a very simple understanding of our faith. I mean, Luther wrote it for his three-year-old son who's running around the house asking, Daddy, was ist das? Was ist das? What is this? What is this? Why, 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 why? That's what three-year-olds do, Right? He wrote it for a three-year-old, right? It's a very basic understanding of the Christian faith. The small catechism begins with a discussion of the law. And now Luther, when he was putting together small catechism, he could have chose a whole bunch of different laws to choose from. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. He could have put them all in the, in the small catechism. Then it wouldn't be small, but he could have picked whatever he wanted. But instead, he chose to pick the very basic Ten Commandments to talk to, to, talk to kids and adults, too, about the law. And eventually, in this catechism, he goes into the gospel. One of the things we always point out to confirmands when looking at the Ten Commandments, is looking at the number of how many of the commandments talk about are about between us and God, laws about us and how we're supposed to interact with God and God's interact with us, and how many laws are guarding how we're to interact with each other. Anybody know the answer? 
How many, how many of the Ten Commandments deal between us and God? How many deal between each other? How many? I heard six. You're off by one. Seven. Seven deal between us. Three are between us and God. 70% of the law is all about how we're supposed to interact with each other. 30% deals with how we're supposed to interact with God. Right? God is more concerned about how you and I get along rather than how we get along with God. And of course, on the surface, if we were to read the, the, the Ten Commandments straight through with no explanation, it sounds like, you know, we're doing pretty good. Especially those seven that deal between us and, and our, our neighbors. I mean, how many of us could read and just say, well, I haven't killed anyone lately. I haven't had an extramarital affair. I haven't robbed a bank. I haven't told a lie to harm someone else. And, and, and to be honest with you, my stuff is nicer than my neighbor's. So why should I even bother coveting what they have? And if we're on the subject of coveting, why does it even matter? So I like nice things. Sue me, right, God? But that isn't so for Luther. Luther explains, for example, in the fourth commandment, that it's not just about honoring your father and your mother. It includes those in authority. And so when we do show or do anything that does not involve honor, serve, obey, love, and respect anyone in authority, including political leaders who we might not always agree with, we say horrible things about them. We don't like the past and we say, oh, he's just a, he's just a moron. They're in authority over us. Teachers, principals, the whole like. We break the fourth commandment. You know, we might not actively go out with a knife and try to stab someone. But unless we help and support our neighbor, and Jesus is very clear about who our neighbor is. It's not just those who live next to us. Unless we help and support our neighbor in all of life's needs, we murder them. We kill them. So every time you are on Bucky Sunpite and you're trying to get on the 70, and there's those panhandlers in on the sidewalk and in the median trying to get some help, and you do nothing for them. You are actively murdering them. And I don't care if you have all the, all the excuses in the world saying, well, they're just going to use it on drugs. And I don't care. And in Hagerstown, I, this is a whole other sermon for another day, but I am so annoyed. They put up these signs that say, why panhandling is banned, but they won't help the panhandlers, right? Which makes absolutely no sense. You spend all this money on, on signs, but you want to help the people who need it. You know, we can say all we want about panhandling and all the goods and bad, all that stuff. But if we don't help our neighbors in need, we are actively murdering them, according to Luther's Catholic. Every time you have traded in that plunker of a car to try to get a better one, you don't tell the dealer everything that's wrong with it because you want to get more for your trade-in, you are breaking the seventh commandment. God is very much concerned about how we treat one another because God knows it is harder to repair human relationships than it is to repair divine relationships. Maintaining human relationships is one of the hardest things we do. It's one of the many tasks that I do as a pastor. Leading the flock sometimes means mediating concerns and disagreements among community members because there is value in maintaining this kind of community. There is power in having this kind of a community. For starters, our community is grounded in the hope of the resurrection. No other community has that hope. Go to your next HOA meeting and see how many people talk about the resurrection. Right? They're going to talk to you about your friends not being the right color before they talk to you about Jesus, right? 
Go to your next PTA meeting and tell me how many times the resurrection is said. Instead, they're going to tell you, you know, how many times have you, like, can you, can you sell more Joe Corby's pizza? That's what they're more concerned with. They're not concerned about the resurrection. If God didn't want us Christians to live together, Jesus would never have established the church. He simply would have died on the cross 2,000 years ago as an atonement for our sins and nothing more. He never would have spent the time to get 12, 12 disciples together. He never would have spent the time to attract large crowds of people and to tell them about God's love for them. He would never have said things like, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The church is important to Jesus. But Jesus is not a fool. He knows that problems and conflicts will arise from time to time in the church. I mean, he saw this with his very 12 chosen disciples. In Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4, Jesus overhears his disciples arguing over who is the greatest. In John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, Judas argues with Mary because Mary has decided to use a bottle of costly perfume to anoint the feet of Jesus, telling her that it would have been better for her to sell that perfume and give the money to the poor. Conflicts among members happens. So Jesus gave us a step-by-step guide of how we should deal with that when they do occur. In fact, if you were to go and look up chapter 15 of our Constitution, actually of any ELCA Constitution, it says prior to disciplinary action and reconciliation and repentance will be attempted following Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Chapter 15 of our Constitution, which is concerning discipline among church members can only be instituted if Matthew 18, 15 to 17 has already been done and failed. But how often do we, we do what Matthew 18 says? How many of us, when another member of our community does something wrong, go and talk directly to that person? Instead, most of the time, we fire up the phone tree, right? And talk to everybody else about that person we have an issue with. We never confront the individual we feel has wronged us. We'll send anonymous feedback and complaints to church leadership in the hopes that they'll just sort it out, right? Imagine if instead of complaining to others about someone else, we go and talk to that person there. Imagine all the problems and conflicts that have happened over the years in the church. Imagine if we would have just talked to one another directly, face to face. Imagine how differently our community would be. I mean, look at any comment section online, and you will find some of the rudest people in the world, right? But it, most of the time, if you meet those people in the world, they're very kind and sweet people. But their online persona has them very rude. Why is that? Or a road rage. Like, when we're in a car, like, my bottom orient shows right? You cut me off, man, you better, better pay for it. You're going to pay for it, right? My, my inner bottom line really shows at that point, right? Why is that? Studies have shown that it's because there are a barrier in between us. So online, there's a computer screen and monitor that separates us from the other individual, right? And so we have no filter in that case, right? We can say whatever we want because we don't have to worry about looking in the, in the eye and seeing the, the sorrow and the sadness from our words hurting them. When we're inside of a car, we're shielded by a giant metal box, right? And because of this giant metal box, we tend to be a little bit more mean, right? Notice, 
you know, say you're sitting in traffic, right? And you're trying to, and all these people keep cutting you off. And you say, I'm not going to let another single person come into my lane. I am not going to. And then this person looks at you in the eye and says, hey, can I merge over? How many of us say, yep, go ahead. Even though we just said, I'm not letting another person merge in front of me, right? When people face each other and look each other in the eye, things tend to de-escalate, right? Jesus wants us to confront those who have made mistakes so that we can, not so that we can expose them and, and then throw them out of the community, but so that we can settle our differences, offer forgiveness, and move on. But there are times when the accuser might be wrong. Right? And that's why Jesus says, if, if you're not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is really done for two reasons. One, it's so that you indeed do have witnesses if things do continue to escalate from here. But they also serve as a check against your argument. Did that individual actually wrong you or did you perceive it as a wrong? The two or three others will help you gauge the truth. Eventually, if that person is indeed in the wrong and won't listen to reason at any level... Sometimes the only course of action to save the community is to ask that person to leave. Church word for that is excommunication. And it should always be a means of last resort. But it sometimes has to be done. Because this isn't your church or my church. This is Christ's church. This is Christ's community. And if someone is hurting Christ's community, Christ's church, they are like a cancer and need to be removed. And it's not to say that everything will be fine and dandy after we remove that person. Because conflict still drives people, other people away, unintended victims. So you've really got to ask yourself, is this really worth the fight? Is it really worth it? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But I think the most important thing to take away from this process that Jesus lines out for us in Matthew 18 is that anonymous feedback has no place in the church. We do things in the open, not in secret. If you have a problem with someone in church, you go and talk to them face to face, hiding behind a screen, a pen, or others, and forcing others to fix your broken relationship is not the Christian way. That is not the Christ way of doing things. Church is a beautiful, messy place. It's a beautiful, messy group of people who come together to support one another and grow in faith, and most importantly, to have Christ present among us. It is hard work to maintain the community, and it's hard, made harder when we put our own needs, desires, and wants ahead of the mission of the gospel. But we must commit ourselves to this important holy work because Christ is present. Christ is watching us. Would Jesus approve of what we are doing, of what we are saying, of how we're treating one another? You heard it said that when the cat's away, the mice will play. Well, our cat never left. It's just sitting up top on the bookshelf watching us. Are you okay with what he's witnessing? You know, I'm not naive to think that, you know, one sermon is just going to fix all of our broken relationships, fix all of our problems, so I hope that we can use Jesus' words from Matthew 18 and create a theological framework that will serve as a guide as we navigate and live as a people of God. 
you know the, the Sunday school rhyme? The, uh, I always do this wrong. Here's a church, here's a steeple, open the door. Yeah, I can never do it. You can see all the people. That is the best way to describe church. It's the people of God. The church is not a building, but it's a gathering of the saints. It's the people of God. May we tend to the relationships of this community just as much as we tend to things like planning worship services, of planning educational ministries, of caring and maintaining our beautiful campus. May we tend to the task of caring and forgiving 